0: I want to start this morning with the question, what makes a good household? What makes a good household to you? And what makes a godly household? Hot roast. <laughs> Hot roast. Hot roast. Food. Okay. Everyone's taking notes. Got it. You know, I didn't have that in my notes this morning, John, but that's, that's good insight. Um, <laughs> what else? Macaroni and cheese. <laughs> macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Respect. Respect. What happens in a household without respect? Falls apart. Chaos. We can just picture it. What else? What makes a good household? (laughs) I missed all of those. (laughs) A good husband. Absolutely. And a beaming husband. That's great. What else? Family. Family. That's right. Good Good standards. Without standards, things fall apart. Teamwork. Communication. Communication. <laughs> like love, love should be somewhere involved, absolutely. Prayer. We had prayer, from back here. prayer from back here? Nice, okay. Because we're, we're looking at things, and, and the things that you've shared are, are a mixture of everyday life, things that make a family, but also a mixture of foundational things like prayer and, and um, good relationships and respect for each other. This morning as we come to this section of Colossians, we come to a section of household rules. A household code that was something that wasn't all that uncommon in the day. There's other secular writings that have household codes that say this is what a house should look like. If you want it to function well, this is what it should look like. And and just reminding us where we've been in the second half of Colossians here, we've talked about what kinds of things to put off. The clothes that we're to put off, and the anger, and the malice, and the bitterness. And we have to get rid of that to be in community with each other. And then we talked about what to put on, and the, the graces, the clothes of, of unity and of harmony. And we talked about forgiveness. We talked about community last week, and community and worship, and community and giving glory to God. And so Paul here now narrows his focus and zooms in on the household. Says, let, let's talk about everyday life. Let's talk about the things that, that you do when you leave church. That, that start this afternoon, that start tomorrow morning. What does it mean to be in Christ in your week? And that's where, where we're going to go this morning. And the text this morning just, just runs through a number of relationships. We'll look at six different relationships this morning that, that actually are three pairs. And we'll look at a husband and wife relationship, a parent-child relationship, and then a master-servant. And we'll apply that to employer-employee relationship. And some of the basic relationships that you you go tomorrow morning or this afternoon and have have to figure out how to make that honoring to Christ. And as we go through the text, my prayer is that nothing is new. I hope that you've studied this text or other texts that, and through the teachings of God's Word, that you come to this and, and you read it and you're like, well, I know that. I'm okay with that this morning. Because this morning is about reminding us of everyday life. Reminding us of what it means to be in Christ and to include Christ in everything we do. The household, I think, is very appropriate to talk about. As we see in society, the downfall of the home equals the downfall of society, usually. It is tied to so many different things and so many different problems in society. Confucius worded it the other way, and not that we quote Confucius very often, but he said, the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. And I read that and I thought, you know, I agree with him on that one. The strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. Now, what he doesn't have, that's the secular view, what he doesn't have, where Paul's going to go this morning is, and the integrity of the homes is derived from, derived from the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we want to go in the text this morning. Would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Colossians 3, verse 18. And we want to talk about making Christ the focus of our everyday life. And while these are familiar instructions, isn't it true that sometimes the most difficult place to put into practice our Christianity is in our everyday life at home? When we're rubbing shoulders, when we're, we're irritated, when we're tired, when we're upset, when we're angry. That becomes tests of how we, we work out our Christianity. In verses 18 and 19, we get the first relationship, the first pair. In your notes, point number one is God's plan for marriage, love and submit. God's plan for marriage, love and submit. In the Ephesians passage, the corresponding passage, it also includes respect. And so we have our class that we teach, love and respect. Same concepts. But in verse 18, let's read together 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And it's important in each of these pairs to see them as a pair, to see them together, to see that there is instructions for the wives and instructions for the husbands. This passage to us may be familiar, but we have to put ourselves in in our way back machine and go back 2,000 years to the church at Colossae when they were hearing this. These would have been radical instructions. And in each of the pairs, we'll talk about that because they would have said, okay, yeah, absolutely talk to the wives, but how dare you give the husbands an instruction? Because we have to understand that in their cultural context, the husbands had had complete domineering authority. The wives, and and we're going to see with the children and with the, the bond servants, were more possessions, things that the husbands could order around. They were a thing. All of the privileges belonged to the husband, all of the duties to the wife. Some of you men are thinking, well, hmm. Paul addresses that. And in each of these pairs, he addresses it by addressing both parties and giving instructions to both parties. And as he does that, he's bringing equality to both parties, even though there's difference in roles and functions. And that, that's that's important to understand as we come to this, this is radical. This is something that they would have been surprised at. And so we get to God's plan for marriage, love and submit, and as we see in the Ephesians passage, in Ephesians 5.21, where Paul introduces the same, same list by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, we see a mutual submission that is played out in, in different roles and in different ways. We all can look around and we can see that without Christ, marriage is a suffering institution. It's a suffering institution. When we, when we take God's way out of it, when we take God's plan out of it, what we're left with is people fighting for position and arguing and out for themselves. One seven-year-old little girl, I love this story, um, had just seen Cinderella for the first time. She went over to the neighbor lady's house and she's testing her neighbor lady's to see if she knows the story. And the neighbor was anxious to impress her and said, you know, I know what happens at the end. And the little girl says, what? And the neighbor said, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. They got married. The little girl answered, Oh, no, they didn't. They got married. They didn't live happily ever after. And in a moment of innocence, there's cynicism. And that's sad to me. That's heartbreaking to me because that little girl, what she has observed is that the the marriage relationship, the marriage union, instead of bringing the joy and fulfillment and glory to God as God intended, what she had seen was anger and animosity and frustration and so paul here in two quick statements two quick verses gives god's plan for marriage first he talks to the wives in verse 18 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the lord and here we get to to a phrase that if if you just walk into your workplace and say you know what i think wives should submit they're going to think you said the s word and they're going to attack and they're because we don't understand what god is saying here the word for submit hypotasso means to voluntarily put yourself in rank under somebody okay so it was used sometimes of, of military service when when you came into rank under under a, 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 an officer that was above you it was used in, in the greek here is what we call a middle Passive, which means it's not something that's, that's forced on you, but the middle means it's something that you choose to do yourself. And Paul is saying, wives, you are people, you are equal, but with the roles that I have described, choose to follow the leadership of your husband. Choose to. That was very different from a day where a husband could take his wife to court and divorce her because she burnt his toast. This was radically elevating the position of wives while fitting within the roles that God has created. It does not mean that wives were inferior. It does not mean that wives were somehow to be used. There is equality in personhood and a difference in roles. We know in Galatians 3.28, Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's referring to our position in Christ. Our personhood, we are one. But at creation, and and Paul here, the instruction he's given, God has set down that there's different roles that help the, the home function. Roles that are complementary to each other, roles that are both needed, that either one of them, if you take it away, the home suffers. And so he's not establishing an issue of worth here, but an issue of leadership and following. What happens if everyone in this room was to to decide to, to tell us where we're going to go to lunch? (laughs) we'd either be really full or we'd sit here for five hours trying to figure out who's going to tell us where to go to lunch. In any organization, in any entity, there has to be someone that leads and that, that takes that role. And God, in His wisdom, has said, I have asked the husband to do that. I have asked the husband to step up and do that. Men, this is why there's instructions for us, because it involves stepping up and leading well. And as we get to the the next verse, I would argue that most of our issues with submission are because we don't know how to lead. And so it's a command for both of us. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, we see a picture of what this word submit means with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Because we read, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, so God is over us, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, none of us would sit here and say, oh, oh, poor Jesus. He is so inferior. No, because what they have is, is you have God the Father and God the Son, and their, their function is different, their role is different, but they are equal. They are both God they are equal in essence, in personhood, but with different roles. And so what you see in that is an illustration from the Trinity that has existed for all eternity of what submission in its proper way looks like. And so we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, not my will, but yours knowing that his Father cares for him and is with him, but willing to follow the Father's lead. And so we see that example in the Trinity, and then that carries into the example of Christ in the church, Christ in every one of us. And then that relationship tells us what the husband and wife relationship should look like. See, leadership is often more an issue of who's held accountable. Who has to step up to the plate? Who takes the fall if it doesn't happen? Man, it's not about making our wives a doormat or a slave or telling them what to do. It's about leading our home for the glory of God. So we see wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And and that second phrase there is just as important as the first one. As is fitting in the Lord. Because Paul here is saying there is a different motivation, there is a different reason for households set up like that than just having a happy life. The reason is this pleases the Lord. This is fitting in the Lord. And that phrase serves several purposes. One, it gives us the constraint of how a wife is to submit to her husband. It it, it says the constraint is that it, it it is fitting to the Lord. That he's not going to be asking things that are contrary to Scripture. But it also gives us the motivation that this pleases God. See, see, here's the deal. If we go into our earthly relationships and we honor people because of their worth, eventually we're going to find a time they're not worth honoring. I don't care who you are, at some point... You're going to be a person that sins, that is fallen, that is not worth respecting and not worth honoring. And so the the foundation, the change in this passage from culture of the time is Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if your husband is worthy or not. What matters is, is God worthy? Is God worthy? Because wives, and we're going to get to the husbands, don't think you're off the hook. Wives, he, he's saying... When you submit, you need to picture Christ there. As as the love and respect curriculum, I love the illustration they use. Picture Christ standing just over the shoulder of your husband or your wife. And as you obey these commands, you're obeying them to Christ. Is he worthy? Absolutely. Does he ever change? No. Has he ever had a moment where he's not worthy? No. Sort of takes all the excuses out of it. We can't come and say, well, if you knew my husband, I, I can't. If you knew my wife, I can't love her. I may not know your husband or wife, but I know our, our savior. And that's who the obedience is directed to. And in our homes, we've got to change our focus from whether or not the, the, our husband or our wife is worthy of the instruction, but are we going to please God? That is the bottom line. Will I please God? Or will I please myself? And so Paul makes the appeal, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But then the corresponding one of this, and this is where he was getting really radical because you just didn't have to give husbands instructions, but he said, no, in Christ's economy, in His way, husbands, here's your responsibility. If you're going to lead, here's your responsibility. Verse 19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, this is abbreviated. We could spend a whole sermon just on this one, and we did on Father's Day. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The word for love there, as you can imagine, is agape. We might have expected it to be eros or or romantic love, but Paul is saying you need to agape your wives. Agape means a sacrificial love. A love that never ceases. A love that is a choice to put her interests above yours 100% of the time. That's agape. And Paul says, husbands, agape your wives. And he gives two, two instructions. The first is to agape or love your wife. The second is, do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. And we see in the command to love a positive injunction. Go out and be intentional and find ways to do this. It means, husbands, if we don't find a way this week, next week, the following week, to make sure our wives know that they are loved and cherished, we are disobeying that Scripture. That's pretty practical. That's getting down to what it takes to make a household work. See, for them, th- this idea of loving your wife was a little bit novel because it was arranged marriages and marriages sometimes to bring families together and, and marriages that would help the economics of two families. And in their writings, they said, if you, if you happened to get someone you love later in life, you were lucky. And Paul says, no, love your wife now it's an instruction be a servant leader and that second phrase do not be harsh with them the the word for harsh there can be translated do not deal with them in bitterness don't let any bitter root take hold Don't get frustrated about little things that frustrate you. Don't let those build. Don't let any any source of bitterness come into your life that affects your actions. So for husbands, he's saying, you need to learn to let things go. Let her be her. Honor her for who God has made her to be. Don't expect her to be like you. And love her dearly. In, In Rome... One of the descriptions of the men is that the men would rage bitterly against their wives. And so Paul is addressing a current problem in their culture. And it might be for something they did, for something they didn't do. But the do not be harsh with them men gives us a constraint that should control our attitudes towards our wives, but our speech towards our wives and our actions towards our wives. See, a wife has little difficulty submitting to her husband when she knows that he loves her. It's why the two have to go together. The difficulty comes when a wife sees a husband that she doesn't even know if he loves her. And it's harder, but she does it and she submits to God. Husbands, you might be like, well... Again, it comes back to the worth and the foundation. Well, I don't know if I can love my wife. You know, she she said some things that really hurt me this morning. Let's deal with that. Then we'll get back to the love part. Remember, it's to Christ. It has nothing to do with her. It's to Christ. And because we love her, we bring peace into the home, and we don't deal bitterly. On each of our, our pairs, I tried to put just some ideas. Some ideas for how to put this into practice. I like ideas. And I'm not saying this isn't like, oh, I have to do these 25 things. But maybe read through them and say, okay, here's some ways we can do it. Husbands, how do you love your wife and not be harsh with them? Be encouraging. Be be gentle with them. Every day, tell your wife something you agape about her. With a note, with words. Maybe relieve her of one of her tasks this week so she can recharge because you're showing then care for her well-being, which is what agape is. Pray for her specifically every day this week. Pray for her specifically every day this week. And I hope it continues beyond this week. But let's start with a week. Especially husbands, if, if you have a wife that is home with your kids, pray for her every day multiple times a day. That is a high calling from the Lord that you know she is uniquely equipped to deal with because we would kill (laughs) him. And so, do we rise up and call her blessed because of the work that she is doing to raise our children to love God? Do we partner with her by praying for her diligently? And I'm not just, oh God, help Susie today. No, are we praying specifically for the incidents that are going to happen that day and and, and her schedule? Do we know their schedule as we go to work enough to pray specifically for each element of the day? Wives, would that make a difference? Yeah. Men, if you find yourself that you've been harsh and sensitive, short in speech, we can all get that way. Apologize as soon as you recognize it and are man enough to do it. I add that at the end on purpose because we, in our culture we sometimes think it's not manly to apologize. But in reality, as soon as we realize that we have been harsh with our children, with our wives, we need to go to them and be a man and apologize and make it right. Wives, some ideas for you. How do you submit to your husband? How do you respect him? How do you boost him up and build him up in a role of leadership that is very difficult, that is very challenging, that we know as men God is going to hold us accountable for? Every day, tell him some way that he is a good leader. Every day, tell your husband some way that he is a good leader. Ask your husband's opinion about something and follow through with it and take it. And that makes husbands feel good. Leave him verses of strength and encouragement to find. What that communicates to your husband is that you value his role as a leader enough to support him in that. Respond positively when he leads. When a husband steps out in spiritual leadership in his home, it is one of the scariest things he will ever do and your response is critical. Do not allow any critical or sarcastic word towards him this week. Do not allow any critical or sarcastic word towards him this week. I'd apply this to men and with women, husbands and wives. One of my concerns as I work with families, as I, as I watch how our culture has developed, is the way that we speak to each other. The way that we speak to each other and, and we write it off, oh, that's just sarcastic, or we're just, you know, we're just having fun, oh, she understands, or oh, he understands. Just don't even let it into your vocabulary. Don't let it into your home. Wives, commit that no one in front of your husband or away from your husband will hear you criticizing. Or be sarcastic toward him. See, both the instruction to husbands and wives to submit, to come under the the leadership of husbands, and to love, to to be completely concerned for her well-being, both of those counter the me aspect in our society, in ourselves, in in the sin nature that God has saved us out of. Because both are focused elsewhere instead of on me. They're both radical. So God has a plan for our marriages. Love and submit. God has a plan for the parent-child relationships, for the parenting relationships, to encourage and obey. To encourage and obey. Verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Do you see the focus again? Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We read those verses again. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Again, Paul is attacking the culture. Everyone would have been like, that's right, you, you say that to children, although they would have been shocked that children were even addressed in a letter. Because in their culture, children were, were sort of pets. And you didn't address them in a letter. This was, this was treating them as human beings. But then to say that fathers had to be careful, there was a section of Roman law called the Patria Patestes that a father, it's, it, it specifically said a father could do whatever he wanted with his children. He had absolute power over them and they were his property. He could sell them. He could turn them into slaves. He could take their lives. Do you get the picture of where, where culture was at with children? And so when Paul writes this, this is radical because Christ changes everything. So verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, and he's speaking to children that are living in the household of under the support of their parents. Usually technos is a word that's used for small Children. But but anyone under the the care and support of their parents. And his, his instruction is, Obey mom and dad. Obey mom and dad. We have a lot of young people here this morning. Junior high, high school, college that are in here, living at home with mom and dad, this instruction's for you. Obey mom and dad. In the things you feel like it. What's the next phrase? in everything in everything now it, the assumption here that we're in, that we're in christian homes and they're not asking you to go steal something or go go wreck someone's car and that's why we again have for this pleases the lord the context is what is the godly thing to ask but and so the the instruction here is obey in everything The focus isn't on whether you like it or not. The focus isn't on whether you agree with it or not. The focus is to obey. But again, the motive is because this pleases the Lord. Just like we said with husbands and wives, with parents and children, it's looking beyond them and seeing the person of Christ and saying, I'm obeying mom and dad because I'm to obey God. Because that pleases God. It doesn't matter if mom and dad have have treated me in a way that I don't think is right. I'm to obey mom and dad because I'm to obey God. So being in Christ changes everything. It takes away all the excuses. Because it's true. Moms and dads, I I know in my life I'm not always worthy of my, my children obeying me. Sometimes I say words in anger. Sometimes I'm tired and irritable. And and, and I watch them and I come back later and I think, man, why do they even have to obey me the way I'm acting? But that excuse is taken away because it's about obeying God. It's directed to God. Just like with moms and dads in the marriage, it's not our mom and dad worthy of obedience, but is God worthy of obedience? See, this is huge because... It is vital for your future that you learn how to come under authority in the home. That is the test bed that God has put you in to be able to learn how to deal with authority at school, how to deal with a teacher, how to deal with authority at work with a boss, how to deal with authority if if a police officer stops by. How we deal with authority is taught in the home by how we obey mom and dad. And that's a message to those of you that are still living in home to take this seriously. It's also a message to moms and dads that we discipline our children. Because if we don't teach respect for authority in the home, we are harming them the rest of their lives. And again, none of this is new. But it's a reminder. It's a reminder. Some ideas for the young people that are here living at home. Listen for something your parents need to be done and do it before being asked. Listen for something your parents need done and do it before being asked. You will amaze your parents. You might have to take them to the hospital, but but they will be thrilled. Sorry, I know all of us do that. The word for obey, it's interesting because the word for obey has the concept of listen in it. it's it's a compound word and the first part of that word is listen and understand and then do it what was your youth theme last year youth hear and do that's a great definition of the word for obey that's here hear it listen to it and do it second smile as you obey without delay that's a phrase we use in our home if there's delay it's not obedience so we always say, obey without delay. And they're like, Dad. But to our young people here, thank God daily that you have parents that love you enough to instruct you. Thank God daily that you have parents that love you enough to instruct you, that are willing to obey God to instruct. It is not easy being on call 24 7 to instruct a family, it's challenging. So thank God that you have parents that are willing to do that. And as you come with gratitude and thanksgiving, it will change your attitude for how you approach them. Then we get to fathers in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And we see the balancing pair of these instructions to, to children and to parents. Primarily fathers are addressed here because dads, you are to be the leader in discipline. You're to set the tone. Don't slough that off on your wife. But set the tone. The word here, though, as we look at it in our context, includes all of parents too. So the, these instructions are for moms and dads, but assuming that dads are taking the, the lead. And the instruction is, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Some translations, I, I believe, use embitter. And, and the idea here is, is not that they just don't like what you do. Because I've heard enough children and youth say, Oh, my dad provoked me. He asked me to do something I didn't want to do. Not what it's saying. Okay? It's talking about an embittering, a hardening of the heart because of harshness, a deriding, a putting down, a belittling. And so it's this constant pushing down and pushing down and pushing down that that eventually hardens the heart and discourages the heart to where the child just can't do anything. And dads, I I think this instruction is for us because we can easily go there and discipline. There's a job to be done. They were disobedient, especially if they were disobedient to my wife. We're going to deal with this. And so Paul is countering culture of the time because in their culture, that was okay. That was expected of a dad. And so for a dad to read this, they're like, what? I have to be concerned about my child's well-being? I have to be concerned about embittering them? But Paul gives the reason. Lest they become discouraged. Disheartened. Broken in spirit. See, the the purpose of, of discipline in the home is to guide and direct to break the will but not the heart. There's a story that Kent Hughes writes about. He worked at a, a store that re- catered to rodeos and cowboys. I couldn't write about this. but And, and, and he's talking about there's two ways to break a horse. Because a, a horse in the wild, you can't just get on and ride. There's two ways to break it. And One way is with the progressive use of a halter, a bit, a blanket, and a saddle, being gentle with them, and, and day by day teaching them how to have a rider on their back. And, and that produces a horse that, that is obedient, but full-spirited and strong and, and holds their head up. Another way, and, and, and I apologize to those of you that are animal lovers, but a, another way that is sometimes used with difficult horses is they'll take a two-by-four and hit their legs until they submit. And you can actually break a horse that way and you can break a horse that, that, is, that is just difficult to break that way but what, what happens is there is great cost to that method and you end up with a spiritless animal. An animal that though is obedient is a shell of what they could have been. What an example of Paul's admonition to dads. How do we train our children? Do we do it with harshness? Do we do it in a way that embitters and discourages? See, discouraged children are a prey for Satan because they're open to lies of Satan. They're open to the appeal of Satan's methods. What are some of the causes? What are some of the ways ways that we embitter our children? So don't go home and do these, but these are things to watch out for. Sometimes it comes when we as parents are too exacting. We expect them for perfection, and any little slip from perfection just gets hammered. Rather, we need to give them areas where they are responsible for and allow them to grow according to their nature. Showing favoritism has a way of of dispiriting children putting down their efforts. Now this doesn't mean we're not honest, but, but taking my, my five-year-old probably is not going to play piano like Anna did this morning. And if he sits down and tries, and I say, you know what, that stunk. No, as a father, I need to look at where he's at and be honest with where he's at. And say, you know, if he has put in a legitimate effort, if he has done his best, I need to praise that. Now, now, if he's been lazy and hasn't practiced, that, that, that's a time for correction. But, but putting down efforts will embitter a child. Setting unrealistic and unreasonable goals, the, the result of that often is an attitude as a child moves into adulthood that I can never please mom and dad. Mom and dad are never happy with me. And that creates all kinds of Distance. Failing to show affection and communicate love, dads, embitters our children. A lack of standards. Somebody mentioned standards earlier. Criticism. Always condemning them, finding fault in what they do. Or if we discipline out of anger or in a harsh way. All of those things embitter. But I put a list there of what can we do to encourage our children as parents. One survey said fathers spend an average of 37 quality seconds a day with their children. Those 37 seconds are awesome. First one on your list, spend more time with your children. Spend time with them helping them on one of their projects. Asking what they're interested in. It goes with the second one, listen and be patient. Hear them. Understand them. Our children have dreams. They have desires. God has made them with personalities. Are we engaging them? And dads, a gift that you can give your children is if you regularly tell each of your children something you're proud of them about. Your words as a father are one of the most powerful influences in your children's lives. And moms, you should do this too. But for some reason, as I've talked with people over the years, the words of their father when it comes to being proud of them ring in their heads for years. Dads, could we take enough time this week to tell our kids something we're proud of them about? And invest in them. We have a unique power. Will we use it In control, or will we be harsh with it? God's plan for parenting. Encourage and obey. Encourage and obey. Finally, the last, the last pair that he deals with here, and there's actually more verses on this, probably because it was a a real issue in their time, but God's plan for the workplace. For them, it had to do with masters and servants, masters and slaves. Keep in mind, Paul is probably writing this with the the book of Philemon, which we're going to study next. So he's sending Onesimus, a slave that ran away, back to Philemon, who could kill him legally, put him to death, but yet they're both believers and now one in the church. A little bit of a sticky situation. And so Paul's sending this letter along with Philemon probably back to the church and so he spends a little bit more time talking about this. Verse 22, we'll read 22 to 25, for, or all the way to 4.1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. See the motivation there. It's not about the master, it's about the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Get some repetition there. He's making a point. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so God's plan for the workplace is to be fair and work hard. To be fair and work hard. First to the bondservants, it's work hard. And we see that in verses 22 through 25. And there's all kinds of opinions about what this word for bondservants means. The ESV translates it bondservants, which has the idea of a slave that is a slave possibly voluntarily. That, that um, they would come back to their master and say, I'd like to, to, be, to work for you the greek word though also includes that of just slaves and 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 paul here isn't trying to overturn a society he's not saying slavery's right he's not saying it's wrong he's saying within the context of our culture let's start living for christ he's he, he's not dealing with slavery he's dealing with our hearts here for us praise god we live in a world where that's not a a, a nation where that's not an issue and so for us, we can take these these principles and apply them to our workplace and to our bosses, to, to employees if you're a manager. And so let's just work through those verses quickly. O- bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. There's the in everything again. Not leaving an excuse. Sometimes it's easy as an employee to say, well, you know, my company's sort of ripping other people off. And... They don't treat me right, and so I sort of deserve some extra time off every day for two or three hours when I'm supposed to be at work. And solitaire's there. And, and we justify things based on our perceived fairness of our bosses. I used to have a computer consulting business, and one of the things that I would do is I would come in and work on, on computers of a variety of businesses in Orange County. and And I was amazed at what, employees would tell me as i'm sitting there working on their computer it was therapy or i needed therapy after it i I don't know and i was amazed at how many employees admitted to basically stealing from their companies time supplies complaining about their bosses didn't matter if they were christians or non-christians the christians sometimes were worse And I think about that when I read, obey in everything, those are your earthly masters. There's no excuses. Next phrase, not by way of eye service. And, and it literally means not when they're watching you. Not just when they're watching you. Ever ever had that where you know, okay, is the boss looking or not? Games with the boss key. So so if, if the boss does come in and is looking, you hit a key and you know, a spreadsheet pops up. Um, we're violating the eye service instruction here when we do things like that. We don't just obey when the boss is looking or when the boss is there. Why? Because the motivation isn't the boss. Later in that verse, it's the fear of the Lord. It's not about obeying your manager, it's about obeying God. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart working mightily, working hard, working because we know it's the right thing to do, fearing the Lord. Verse 23 expands that. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So if you have a boss that that frustrates you, that annoys you, again, look past them and see Christ. And obey whether or not they deserve it, whether or not they're a believer, because you're obeying Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with them. And then he gives some promises in verse 24 to the servant here, the bondservant. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do your your Bible say the inheritance? It's very specific. And it's speaking of eternal life. And it's saying as a believer, you can obey your boss. you You can work hard whether or not they deserve it because you know that you have an inheritance that is coming that is eternal. That would have rung especially true for servants and slaves of the times who weren't allowed to have any inheritance. They would have read that and said, wow, there's something for us and it's more valuable than anything else I could have. So there's the promise that you'll receive an inheritance, eternal life. The instruction then follows, you are serving the Lord Christ. There is a value and an honor in hard work. When when we go to our workplaces and we work with integrity and we work with responsibility, we are glorifying Christ. And we have to get past this idea that there's secular work and sacred work. Oh, only Pastor Ron gets to glorify work, glorify God at work because he works at the church all week, or as some of you say, one day a week. But um, <sighs> but no, all work is an opportunity for the sacred. All work is holy and set apart because it depends on who we are working for. Not in a physical sense, not church and secular, but. I am working for God and I will bring Him glory by working hard and with sincerity and with integrity whether or not I am being watched. And jumping to verse, chapter 4, verse 1, the corresponding instruction to that is to the masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And again, that would have been a radical instruction for them. I have to care about who's under me? No, they're under me. And Paul says, No, they're believers. They're people made in the image of God. You care about them. Treat them justly and fairly. And then, what I think is, is a shuddering, a, a, a reminder that should make us shudder, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. By the way, in case you get out of line and start to domineer and, and lord it over people, remember you're not really the boss. You have a master that's over you, and you will answer to him. That's why it makes me shudder when I read something like that. It's like, oh, yeah. And so when, when we have people that we manage, when people that are over us in the workplace, are we, are we just with them? Do we treat them right? Do we treat them fairly with equality? Do we treat them as people? Re- realizing that they are people that God has created, And I list some things there for for both the employee and the employer. For the employee, don't justify dishonesty and negligence by saying your employer is not fair. Work hard, even if your boss isn't around. Take initiative. Find what work needs to be done and go do it. And don't complain about your boss. Again, praise God you have a job. And that he's providing. And to to, to those of you that are managers... Are you treating those under you with the same consideration and care that you hope God treats you with? Man, that changes everything of how we manage people. Do you treat them as people and not resources? Does that make sense? We can treat treat people under us as resources to get a task done, or we can treat them as people that have lives that need care. And so we've rushed through three sets of relationships. Husband and wife, parents and children, boss, employee. All of these are just things of everyday life. But all of them, we have these instructions because every part of life is to bring glory to God. Everything you do, even tomorrow morning when you go into uh, to work and you're doing the same thing over, that has meaning because you're working for God. Is meaning because we honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how being in Christ radically changes our households and our daily lives. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that You would help us to, to evaluate ordinary life and see it as holy, see it as glorifying to You. And Lord, challenge us to take these things and not to just run by them because, oh, that's things we've heard before but to have a take a a new look at our lives to say, am I glorifying God in every relationship that I have? May we love our wives. May we respect our husbands. May we obey parents. May we discipline with encouragement. Lord, may we do all things to your glory. I pray for our congregation, our church body this week that we will be radically changed in the ordinary. In Jesus' name.